So good morning, everybody, if you're on Eastern time. Thank you all very much for showing up. Uh, this episode uh, is going to be about uh, the fundamentals of compounding and exponential growth. So if, if we are going to be investors over the long period of time, uh, compounding is one of the most important concepts uh, to understand. And uh, there are a whole lot of concepts uh, that are sort of embedded uh, within compounding. So uh, I covered some of those in my thread. For example, uh, wh what is the definition of compounding? So uh, typically people like to see their wealth grow over time, uh, but not all growth is compounding. Uh, only exponential growth uh, constitutes compounding. So if you, uh, if you have something like a savings account and that savings account is earning say 10% per year, and all the uh, interest that's earned uh, goes back into the account and it, that also earns 10% uh, per year in future years. Uh, that, is, that would be an example of uh, wealth in that account uh, compounding over time. Uh, because if you, if you just plot the, the wealth uh, or the, the balance in the savings account versus time, you, you'll see that the growth uh, is exponential. So as, as you um, wait longer and longer, uh, the, the balance in the savings account will become bigger and bigger. And not just that, it will follow an exponential uh, growth curve. Um, whereas if you uh, say you you have a job and you you get paid uh, ten dollars an hour or something like that to work at that job, um, now if if you go and um, uh, if if you work for for an hour you get paid ten dollars and if you uh, work for two hours you get paid twenty dollars and and so on. So uh, if you plot uh, your your wealth versus uh, your, your cumulative earnings versus uh, how much time you've spent working, uh, you'll see that that graph also grows with time. Uh, so as you uh, spend more and more time working, you, you do get uh, more and more uh, wealth out of this process. But this is not compounding because this is just linear growth. The more time you spend, the more money you make, but the amount of money you make just grows linearly with time. It doesn't grow exponentially. So this is not uh, an example of compounding. Um, so for, for compounding to happen, uh, the growth in wealth must be exponential. Uh, so that, that is one of the key concepts. And uh, people who can uh, harness the power of compounding and use it to their advantage, even perfectly ordinary people, uh, they can get extraordinary results over a long period of time if they know some basic concepts and they stay disciplined and they use the power of compounding to their advantage. And uh, the thread that I wrote, it uh, sort of covers some of the essential concepts uh, that investors need to know. Now, um, typically my threads cover uh, uh, fairly advanced concepts, things like um, you know uh, Shannon's demon and uh, discounted cash flow analysis. And uh, th these are all fairly advanced concepts. But compounding, at least on the face of it, uh, is actually a very simple set of concepts. Uh, but uh, the, the impact that this simple set of concepts can have on us if we truly internalize them and apply them to our investing journey 
it's it's just uh, enormous the amount of impact that this can have so that's why i wanted to write a thread uh, about the basic concepts of compounding and uh, that that's what this podcast uh, is also going to be about uh, so I, i i can talk a little bit more about compounding or uh, um, if uh, if you have any questions uh, now now would be a great time to uh, uh, so, sort of start asking those questions and uh, you know we can uh, we we can take it forward that way does, does anybody have a question anything in the thread or anything external uh, that that's not in the thread but that you want to ask about uh, when it comes to compounding anyone wants to kick this off no well usually at this point i i suggest uh, i i i give a quote about uh, confucius so confucius uh, had this uh, very remarkable quote where he said that uh, uh, if you ask a question you may look like a fool for a minute but if you don't ask the question you may remain a fool for life um, and uh, so so if if you have any any questions at all so so it looks like we have one one caller uh, raj raj i think you're on mute okay yeah can you hear me now yes yeah uh, so so actually my question was uh, more to do with uh, uh you know the timing that that uh i started investing so so in the example that you give um with mike you know uh, right. so so mike uh, saving 50k uh per year and 30 years in in that you say that 40% of the uh you know total uh, outcome uh it will come in the last 5 years right so because that's how compounding works i mean it, it's the the more you stay in the game i think it kind of uh, accelerates later so the question here is like for people like me who started late i mean i didn't start when like when well, like buffett started at 12 years or somebody started at 20 years i started late so i mean what is the uh, is there any other model or the way to kind of you know um get to the net result uh, you know in in a way that i don't have to wait for 30 years or so uh yeah that that is a great question um so well uh the the true power of compounding manifests itself uh over a long period of time um but it depends sort of on what your goal is so with with buffett he started at uh, 11 years old he he bought his first stock when he was 11 um and uh, t- today he's worth more than uh, 100 billion dollars or what whatever it is and this uh, early start has given him uh, a huge advantage but um uh, mo- most of us don't get such an early start in our lives but most of us also uh, don't need 100 billion dollars to be happy in life <laughs> um so uh, what what we are really looking for uh, is uh, financial independence which is basically the the ability to uh have uh, enough money to live comfortably for the rest of our lives without really needing a job or anything like that so the goal here is is much more modest uh, just 
being financially independent as opposed to you know being a billionaire or something like that um so even people who start fairly uh, late in life um as long as they are disciplined about saving money and as long as they can invest uh, reasonably intelligently that that money uh, they can achieve financial independence in um, in a in a reasonable amount of time uh, so so you you may not have 80 years in front of you to to do this uh, this kind of uh, saving and investing but uh, i i know people who uh, who have uh, achieved financial independence in in 10 years uh, by focusing on their savings so they um so so there are people um, there is this entire movement called the fire movement uh, fire stands for financially independent and retired early and uh, these guys what they do is uh, they they place an extraordinary amount of emphasis on saving so they save like 80 to 90% of their incomes now of course that that may not be possible for for all of us and it also to some extent depends on what your income is but if you can save a large percentage of your income and if you can keep your needs fairly modest and limited um then if you can take these savings and invest them in a reasonably intelligent way um financial independence uh, can actually uh, be within reach uh, in say uh, 10, 10 years time or something like that so you you don't need 80 years uh, to to achieve this kind of financial independence that that's the that answer the question absolutely thanks a lot that that that's a uh, you know very practical way of looking at it agreed sure thank you mm. so I'll... can i go go sure, to sure. the question of course okay. of course yeah so, so now this is regarding uh, the the portfolio rebalancing i think i don't know if you have written a, a twitter thread on that in the past but um, i'll go and ask it N- now in the in this whole uh, process of compounding now what is the expectation that there is a capital inflow on a yearly basis uh, versus not having any capital inflow or you know on a yearly basis what i mean is like um do we is it um i mean if i buy something and it is compounding at let's say x percent date and i don't add any additional capital to that right. uh, and and it will compound there's no point but adding capital versus not adding capital what is the difference uh right so uh, the the first part of the question was about uh, rebalancing right and the second part of the question was about adding capital so uh, yes um, as you add more and more capital towards the, um, uh, so so let's say you save a certain amount of money every year and you add that uh, to your portfolio now of course as soon as you add that amount of cash to the portfolio uh, the existing allocation of all the um, positions in your portfolio um, in in percentage terms that that's going to come down so for example if you had a portfolio that's uh, say uh, 100k portfolio and uh, to take a simple example let, let's just say uh, apple is 60% of the portfolio and uh, google is the other 40% so now uh, you have 60k worth of apple shares and 40k worth of uh, google shares right uh, now let's say you contribute uh, another 50k to the portfolio 
So now the portfolio is worth 150K. Uh, but Apple is still only 60K of that uh, 150K. So now uh, Apple's allocation is only 40% of this new portfolio. So uh, what has happened is uh, by adding this extra amount of capital, um, the weight of all the existing positions in the portfolio, like Apple and Google and so on, uh, has actually gone down. Uh, but uh, this extra 50K that uh, you contributed to this portfolio, it really depends on what you do with this 50K. Now, if you're going to invest this 50K in the same way that you invested earlier, which is to put, put it into Apple and Google at the same 60-40 ratio, uh, then uh, the the percentage of Apple and Google in the portfolio will remain exactly the same. It's not going to change. Uh, but if you put it in, say, a, a third stock, uh, if, you, if you put it in Starbucks or, or something like that, uh, now that itself achieves a certain kind of rebalancing, right? Because uh, if you, uh, earlier Apple was 60% uh, of the portfolio and now Apple is only 40% of the portfolio. So the very act of adding capital and putting that capital into a third stock or uh, into existing stocks in not the same ratio that they are in, that itself constitutes uh, rebalancing. Um, so people who add capital constantly into their portfolio because they are getting earnings and they are able to save a po portion of their earnings, they are actually engaging in uh, a certain kind of rebalancing. Uh, but this kind of rebalancing does not require uh, selling out of any position or anything like that. Um, so so that, that's the relationship between rebalancing and uh, uh, continuously adding capital. And similarly, if you're in retirement and you want to uh, continuously withdraw capital from the portfolio uh, just by deciding uh, where to withdraw the capital from. So if Apple has gone up a lot, you may decide to sell some Apple shares to withdraw capital. Or if Google has gone up a lot, you may decide to sell some Google shares. And that also is a certain kind of uh, rebalancing. So addition and removal of capital uh, can be used uh, to rebalance the portfolio. Um, with addition, you don't you don't even have to sell any shares to to do that. Does that answer the question? Yeah. So so just to conclude, uh, you know, adding uh, to the portfolio will uh, which which I which in this case I am uh, you know qualifying qualifying as rebalancing. Uh, it accelerates the compounding. Is that is that the way I understood? Uh, that is absolutely correct. So um, the the more um, uh, the, the more capital you have, uh, well, I, I'm not sure if you can call it accelerating the compounding because compounding, let's say your portfolio earns 10% per year or, or whatever uh, the portfolio earns. Now, just by adding capital, you're not going to make that 10%, say 12% a year or anything like that. Uh, but the balance, uh, of the, the worth of the portfolio is going to grow uh, faster than if you never added any capital to it. So in, in that sense, it's an acceleration, but it's not an acceleration in the sense that it improves your returns on capital. Okay, got it. Thanks a lot. That, that answers my question. Sure. So I'll, I'll take the uh, next question. It's from uh, Shashi, who's a regular caller on the show. Hi, 10K. How are you? Hey, doing good. How are you? Good, good. 
so a quick one. Uh, this is with regards to the uh, rule of 72 uh, that you have discussed in the Twitter thread. Um, what I want to know is uh, I have done some computations uh, before and it appears to be it appears to be that uh, the uh, percentage uh, like if it goes beyond say 20 percent the estimate uh, deviates a lot uh, isn't that correct uh, if that's so what's the uh, I mean what's the reasoning behind it uh, yeah, that's one thing. Uh, also, is there any other uh, estimation models uh, uh, that we can, uh, you know, uh, make use of? I know in the thread you mentioned about the 2240, uh, uh, but I haven't got a chance to check at it. But uh, are there any other sophisticated, uh, you know, estimation models that we can use? Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Uh, right. So the rule of 72 uh, is only an approximation. Um, so what, what the rule says is uh, the amount of time it takes to double your capital. Um, if, if you're earning, say, R percent per year on your capital, then the amount of time it takes to double the capital is 72 divided by R, approximately. So, for example, if you're earning 10% on capital, uh, 72 divided by 10 is 7.2. So it will take 7.2 years for you to double your capital. So if you started with $100, uh, at the end of 7.2 years, you'll have $200. If you started with $1 million, uh, at the end of 7.2 years, you'll have $2 million. That, that's the rule of 72. Uh, now, of course, this rule of 72 is only an approximation. And uh, it actually comes from, uh, it, it, it's a specific kind of approximation called uh, Taylor series approximation. And, um, uh, the, the way it works is uh, the, the return, uh, the, the amount of time it takes to double your money, uh, it, it can be expressed uh, as an infinite series. So essentially, if you add an infinite number of terms, you, you will get uh, the, the amount of time it takes to double, uh, uh, double your money. But you don't have, uh, you don't want to add an infinite number of terms because uh, that, that takes a long time. So, so what, you, what this Taylor series approximation does is it says, uh, forget about all the other terms in, the, uh, in this uh, infinite series, just take the first term and that corresponds to uh, the rule of 72. So uh, if you have very high rates of return, um, like say 20%, the rule of 72 uh, doesn't really uh, 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 then what happens is the rule of 72 becomes less and less valid uh, as an approximation. So just, just to take a very simple example, suppose you had a 100% rate of return, right? Um, so so you uh, with a 100% rate of return, you double your money in just one year, right? Um, but uh, the, the, the rule of 72 um, will, will, uh, will, will not predict that. The, the rule of 72 will say that if you, if you have a 72% return, uh, then uh, you you double your money uh, in in one year, right? Uh, and this this is obviously uh, not not the case. Uh, so the rule of seventy two is valid uh, for sort of typical returns, say um, you know eight percent, ten percent, twelve percent, those kinds of returns. But if you had very high returns, uh, then the rule of seventy two becomes less and less valid. And actually, uh, if you uh, do the Taylor series approximation. And you calculate uh, what the uh, exact uh, rule is. It's actually not the rule of 72. It's actually the rule of uh, 69.31. Uh, 
so if you if you take 69.31 and divide it by the return that you get uh, th- that is a uh, that that is a more accurate Taylor approximation than the rule of 72. Now, why why do people use 72 instead of 69.31? It's simply because uh, 72 divides a lot of numbers easily. So 72 is divisible by three, 72 is divisible by six, 72 is divisible by 12, and and so on. Uh, so so if you earn a 12% return, for example, 72 divided by 12 is six. So it takes six years to double your money. It, it's easier. Uh, whereas if you had to do 69.31 divided by 12, that, that's more difficult. Uh, so, so so that's why people use the rule of 72 uh, as an approximation. Um, I'm, I'm not aware of any other ways to do uh, quick uh, calculations of this sort, um, except to you know uh, build a spreadsheet or use a calculator or something like that. Uh, so in, in my house, um, I, I, I have a calculator in, uh, in every single room uh, because I, I calculate numbers all the time. <laughs> and, and so um, <laughs> I, I don't know any, any quick <laughs> ways to uh, get around it. The rule of 72 is a, is a, is a good approximation uh, in, in a lot of cases, but uh, in extreme cases, it, it of course, uh, fails. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, the reason I asked was like, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, I've been uh, watching uh, certain videos from value investors like Monish Pabrai and uh, uh, similar value investors. What they almost say is, uh, always say they don't use Excel. They do uh, all these calculations uh, uh, mentally. So I was thinking, uh, is there any better way we can, you know, <laughs> make use of that? Uh, right. So, so I don't know. Of course, I believe, I believe Buffett can do the compounding, uh, the actual compounding in his head, right? I mean, not the estimation, I believe. That's what I heard. Uh, right. So there is this uh, story of uh, how Buffett can do uh, an extraordinary number of calculations in, in his head. So... Um, one of his biographers, uh, they had the story where uh, as Buffett is driving around uh, around Omaha, um, he, he uh, takes the license plate numbers of the cars around him and he calculates their uh, cube roots uh, in his head just for fun. <laughs> so so, so he, he has an extraordinary ability to do these uh, numerical calculations just mentally. Uh, people like Monish Pabrai, um, when they say they don't use Excel, uh, I think what they mean is that um, if you can't tell straight off the bat that uh, th- this particular business is a is a good uh, investment, then uh, they will not invest in that business. So if you need a complicated Excel model uh, to sort of tell you whether this is a good investment or not, then uh, that is probably not going to be a good investment. This is the feeling of people like Munish Babrai uh, when they do this, uh, because they, they want such a large margin of safety when they buy a company. Um, so so if you, for example, if you, if you buy a company at say 10 times earnings, and you know that this, uh, or you're reasonably confident that this company is going to uh, be able to achieve uh, say 25% return on capital, uh, over over the next 20 years. Now, uh, of course, uh, you, you may not get the exact 25% return on capital. Uh, it may be slightly more, slightly less, and so on. But you, you don't really need Excel to tell you that this is going to be a very good investment, even if the 25% doesn't materialize, even if it's only 20%. Uh, 
you, you don't need Excel to tell you that this is going to be a phenomenal investment for you, um, simply because the earnings are going to grow uh, at such a good uh, clip and you are getting the business at such a low price. So um, I, I think more than saying I don't use Excel, um, it, it's better to uh, sort of say, uh, I don't need Excel to tell me that this is a good investment. Uh, even without Excel, I can conclude that it's a good investment. But with Excel, of course, I can do a lot more calculations and uh, I, I can do a lot more sophisticated analysis than, than I can do without Excel. Uh, thanks, Rinke. Uh, I have another question if I can ask. Sure, sure. Uh, this is uh, basically with regarding to uh, return on capital. Uh, what is your view on uh, uh, R&D uh, being expense rather than capitalized? Because uh, the accounting mostly was done. Uh, I mean, it was designed maybe for mainly for manufacturing companies, but now uh, in the last decade, most of the companies are software based and most of the investments are not toward uh, uh, physical uh, equipments or anything. Most of it is R&D uh, and it's all intangible investments. So when you are, uh, I mean, when you are assessing a company, um, how do you go about it? Do you consider R&D as an expense or do you uh, make uh, adjustments uh, like uh, turn it into a capital uh, capital uh, do you capitalize it or do you do any kind of uh, adjustments yeah thank you uh, right the, this is again uh, su such a wonderful question so um, the, the first person uh, whose whose work that i read which influenced me in a big way uh, about this particular question was uh, michael moberson um, so Michael yeah, I'm Mombasan, reading his book actually, uh, the expectations. Oh, in expectations investing. It's, it's a phenomenal yeah. book. Uh, so yeah. uh, well, uh, if, if you want to learn more about this particular aspect of uh, uh, expectations investing, is a is a great book in in general. But if you want to learn more about this particular aspect, which is capitalizing versus expensing intangible investments like R and D, uh, Michael Mombasan also has a paper. It's called uh, One Job. So it argues that uh, the one job of any investor uh, is to try and understand uh, what, what impact various kinds of investments have on the income statement and the cash flow statement and, and so on of the company so that you can predict the future returns of that investment. Uh, so the basic idea is that when a company um, spends money on R&D, so companies like uh, Apple or um, Google or Facebook, for example, they, they spend a lot of money on uh, research and development. And all this money uh, is expensed right away. So if uh, Facebook spends $1 billion on, on R&D, what happens is that uh, that $1 billion is taken out of the income statement. So uh, if you look at this, this particular quarter's profit or something like that, it will be uh, reduced by $1 billion because that $1 billion has been deducted as an expense on the income statement. But is it really an expense? Uh, it, it's, it's not quite an expense in the sense that uh, this $1 billion that Facebook has um, uh, sort of invested, it should be more viewed more as an investment than as an expense. Uh, 
so so if uh, facebook went and uh, you know uh, did did some kind of uh, uh, say say it bought uh, bought another company or something like that for the same 1 billion dollars uh, th- that would be viewed by facebook as a as an investment right so you go and acquire something uh, some some other business for 1 billion dollars and because of this acquisition uh, your earnings power increases over time and this this 1 billion that is spent on r&d is very similar because uh, instead of going and acquiring somebody else for 1 billion you develop some capabilities in house for 1 billion and uh, that 1 billion may increase your uh, future earnings at um, at facebook so for example if that 1 billion uh, investment helps you increase your earnings by say uh, 200 million uh, that that investment has earned uh, a 20% return and let's say um, uh, let's say it helps you increase your earnings by 200 million for the next uh, 10 years or something like that uh, then ideally what should happen is that this 1 billion has to be uh, uh, depreciated over those 10 years because uh, facebook spent this 1 billion dollars and as a result of spending this 1 billion dollars um they are able to earn uh, 200 million dollars each in the next 10 years so this 1 billion is like it's like buying an asset for 1 billion and that asset has a 10 year uh, lifetime and uh, uh, over this 10 year lifetime that asset uh, earns a return so uh, this should really be treated as an investment not as an expense um, so yes uh, so what what happens uh, is that investments like this of this form uh, they because of the way the financial reporting works because of the way uh, generally accepted accounting uh, practices uh, gap works um, the earnings of companies that do this sort of thing uh, are understated relative to true economic earnings uh, so because facebook has deducted this 1 billion uh, as an expense uh, straight away Uh, facebook has actually reported on its uh, income statement a lower profit than it would have reported if this 1 billion is treated properly by capitalizing it over 10 years because if this 1 billion is capitalized over 10 years then uh, the current year expense would only be 100 million whereas the current year expense that was actually reported is the full 1 billion so the profits would be higher if you had uh, 100 million in expenses instead of 1 billion in expenses uh now at the same time uh, you also have to take into account the uh, the effect on the balance sheet uh, because if you if you spent 1 billion dollars acquiring assets uh, what would happen is uh, that 1 billion will show up as assets on your uh, balance sheet right um but because facebook um, ha- uh, has expensed it instead of capitalized capitalizing it that 1 billion does not show up as any asset on the on the balance sheet uh, now uh, if you calculate something like a return on assets uh, what what happens is that the true assets on the balance sheet are actually uh, much higher than the reported assets on the balance sheet because of this uh, this uh, expensing instead of capitalizing so when you calculate a return on asset ratio using the reported numbers you will get a much higher return than you may get if you calculated uh, uh, calculated it using true numbers instead of just the reported numbers so um, on the 
on paper, Facebook may seem like a great business that's earning, say, um, 80% return on assets, uh, 80% return on capital or some, something like that. But if you make all these adjustments, it may turn out that it's a slightly less wonderful business. It's earning only 40% return on uh, assets or capital or uh, some, something like that. Um, so uh, businesses that um, do this sort of thing, they typically understate income, but uh, they typically overstate uh, return on capital. So both are important to take into account. And Michael Bomberson uh, actually does this exercise for uh, Microsoft uh, in, in that paper, the, the one job paper. He, he relies on results published by a previous author and then he does his own analysis. And he comes to the conclusion that uh, Microsoft, um, the return on capital drops from something like 50% to something like 30% when you do all these adjustments. Mm -hmm. So Microsoft is still an extraordinarily wonderful business, but it's not as wonderful as it would seem if you just use the reported numbers. Uh, so, so for people who want to know more about this, uh, I, I, you know, strongly encourage you to go and read Mobison's uh, uh, bo both his uh, paper uh, called called One Job and his uh, book Expectations yeah. Investing. I think he has he has written uh, many research papers. Uh, 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 am I correct? Like I've, I've, I've heard uh, from a podcast. Like uh, there were so many papers. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. He, also, he has been at this for a very long time, and uh, every single paper of his, um, <laughs> just to read and internalize the concepts in in the paper, uh, it, it it can take a certain amount of time for you to sort of work it out on its own. Every little sentence in his paper. Uh, ha has a certain amount of significance <laughs> and uh, it, it can take a while to sort of digest his, his entire body of work. Uh, but if you if you do that, you will become a much better investor. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so, so yeah. I, I really love his, his work and he, he has done su such a major service to all investors by just publishing all his work openly. Yeah. Uh, also, 10K, I think, uh, I guess uh, companies would prefer that it's recorded in the income statement because uh, once they reduce the earnings, they only need to uh, pay less taxes, right? So, yes, I that believe, is, that uh, is companies another. will prefer that, right? Yeah. Exactly. That, that is another effect of reporting uh, artificially low earnings. Uh, you don't mm -hmm. have to pay taxes and uh, the, the tax savings uh, can, can be uh, pretty significant. Significant, yeah, true. Okay. Absolutely. Thanks, sir. Thank you. Sure. So I'll take the uh, next uh, caller. Uh, his, his name is uh, Vinod. Hi, Tenke. Thanks for Hello. taking up uh, and setting up this session. I think it's a wonderful thread again. Uh, I know the every time I think it's compounding is a basic concept, You your thread basically blows my mind in terms of the various elements that we can think and apply uh, for our investing, not just investing, in, in general. Uh, thank you for doing that. Thank you. So I have uh, three uh, questions. Basically, I'll try to go one by one. Um, first one is uh, from the summary, uh, the thread that you've written on the compounding, right? Uh, right. Interruption to compounding can be costly. I think that's what uh, uh, Charlie Bangal also says, like never interrupt unnecessarily. Right. And also, if you combine that with the uh, point number six, turning 
capital more quickly leads to a faster compounding. So it's yes. more of uh, uh, contrary or it's more of uh, uh, two different opinion. So how do we balance the strike uh, on these two uh, aspects? Um, so when you turn capital more quickly, um, you are you are actually compounding. You are not interrupting uh, the the flow of compounding, right? So wh why would you say that uh, these two ideas are a little bit uh, uh, in conflict with each other? I I don't really yeah. see why they are uh, in in conflict. Okay. So the way I understood is basically the interruption is more of uh, say taking an investment decision. For example. Uh, a business grows at 10 percentage and you found an option another business basically it grows 15 percentage so it is more okay. of taking the capital from business a and moving it to business b and business a to business a movement i would see is more of interruption and uh, the business b uh, we are making that decision from business a b type of business say b1 b2 b3 and you are trying to change make the churn very quickly to get a faster compounding Ah, yes. Well, um, so in this case, if you take money out of, uh, say, one, one uh, business which is growing at 10% and uh, uh, putting putting that same money to work at another place where it is able to earn 15%. Yeah. Now, that is not really an interruption to compounding, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the way I, I see an interruption to compounding is... Uh, Say if you're if you're saving and investing uh, for for ten years, and then uh, for for some uh, reason uh, you are not able to save and invest in the eleventh year, uh, maybe because you lost your job, or maybe because you have some uh, unexpected expenses, or or something like that. Now, uh, as a result, what you do is uh, instead of uh, adding money into your portfolio, you actually withdraw money from your portfolio. Now that is an actual oh. interruption. Uh, so, yeah, so that kind of interruption can be very costly. And uh, so um, the the way Charlie Munger uh, thinks about this um, is, let, let's say you have a, a savings account where uh, you can you can compound money at, say, 10 percent. 10%. Uh, now, if you can, um, let, let's say you have 100K in this uh, savings account and uh, let's say you uh, compound at this 100k at 10% for 30 years or something like that. So at the end of 30 years, you will have something like 1.1 to the power 30 uh, times 100k. And this is where the uh, calculator in my room is very useful. So I can tell you that uh, that works out to about uh, 1.7 million dollars. So if you if you take 100k and you compound it for, at 10% for 30 years, you'll be left with uh, about $1.7 million. But suppose you interrupt this process. So let's say you compound this money for 10 years and then uh, for five years, you don't do anything. Um, so you, you just keep this money and then again, you uh, restart the compounding. Uh, now what happens is uh, you've actually compounded this money for only uh, 25 years because uh, you started uh, uh, compounding, but then you stop this in the middle for five years. So during that 30 year stretch, what happens is five for five of those years, uh, the compounding has been interrupted. Um, and so the money has compounded 
uh, only for 25 years, not not for 30 years. And uh, if you uh, calculate what how much money you'll be left with uh, at the end of those 30 years, with 25 of those years being used for compounding, then uh, it turns out that uh, you're left with only about uh, 1.08 1, uh, million dollars. So, so the difference is uh, between 1.74 million and 1.08 uh, million, and uh, that 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 difference. Uh, so, so if if you take 1.74 million and subtract out uh, 1.08 million and divide that by 1.74 million. Uh, it turns out that uh, the, the the difference is about uh, 37.93% or, or 38%. So so you you have 38% less money. Uh, but 5 out of 30 years uh, is is only about uh, one sixth or 16 16% of the years. So by interrupting compounding for 16% of the time, you your amount of money that you have at the end declines by 38%. So it's not 16%, 16%. It's actually, if you reduce the period by 16%, your final uh, wealth gets reduced by 38%. So uh, that's why compounding, uh, interrupting compounding is, is so costly. Okay, makes sense. No, I, I was uh, maybe a bit confused with the, the buy and hold strategy. Um, maybe if business grows steadily, uh, maybe it is... Uh, it's not a good idea to interrupt unnecessarily. Uh, thanks right, for right. explaining that. Yeah, absolutely. And the other key question that you uh, raised is about turning capital more quickly. Yeah. Uh, right. So, so um, turning capital quickly. Businesses that turn capital quickly, uh, generally, they can earn higher returns uh, than businesses that uh, turn capital more slowly. Um, so, so you, there is always a sort of conflict between um, margins and how quickly you can turn capital. Uh, so the, the example that I like to quote often here is uh, a grocery store versus a jewelry store. Uh, so the grocery store has very low margins, right? So uh, typically in, in the U.S., grocery stores have less, less than 5% uh, margins on on whatever they sell. Uh, jewelry stores, by contrast, they have a very uh, very high margin. So if you take something like Tiffany's, uh, if you, if you take the amount of uh, how, how much it costs for them to make a make, make an engagement ring or something, and how much they sell it for, the margin is very very high. But then the problem is, um, grocery stores can sell their stuff very very quickly. So they let's say they get meat or uh, vegetables or something like that today, they can sell that within a week and then they can repeat this process many times during the year. Uh, whereas Tiffany's, once it makes an engagement ring, that engagement ring will probably uh, be on its shelves for, for a long time before uh, it manages to find a customer to sell that ring to. So um, the grocery store is a business with high turnover, high inventory turnover, but low margins. Tiffany's is a business with low inventory turnover, but high margins. So um, the point about turning capital quickly is you have to look at both. You have to look at both inventory turnover as well as margins. You can't just look at one or the other. The return that an owner will get from a business uh, depends on both. 
So ideally, you want high margins and high turnover. But if that's not possible, um, it's sometimes possible to find a business that has high turnover, low margins, and good returns on capital. Uh, and and some some grocery stores actually have th- those kinds of uh, returns. Okay, great, great. Sure. And uh, my next question is on the um, the point number seven in the summary. Well, that's basically compounding cannot go forever, and we should right. be careful in terms of what price we pay for the business, right? I just right. want to understand, like, how do you take these compounding principles, and and what are the various, uh, how do you apply it in the various metrics like uh, revenue growth, uh, profit growth, or um, return on investments? Uh, how do you basically, if you can throw some thought process, how do you take these compounding principles and then deploy, uh, apply in different uh, uh, metrics in the invent, investment that you make. Uh, probably that could add uh, some insights uh, and uh, interesting in- insights. So like, how do you use these principles in your investing additions? Uh, right, absolutely. So, w- one of the main uh, concepts to understand with compounding is that it it cannot go on uh, forever. So, no matter uh, how how good a business you have, uh, there are probably some natural limits to uh, how long that business can compound money for. Uh, So there are lots of businesses. uh, They earn uh, a very good return on the capital that has already been invested into them. But you cannot add new capital into that business and earn exactly that rate of return. Uh, so, so uh, if if you take a business like um, say say when when uh, Buffett bought uh, Kraft Heinz, uh, he he commented that uh, th- this business uh, had about seven billion dollars of uh, capital, tangible capital, or something like that, and it it earned six billion on that seven billion of capital. So uh, if you if you just take the return, uh, that that's like an eighty six percent return. So, so th- this business is able to earn 86% on its uh, capital. But uh, you can only do that on $7 billion. You can't, uh, you can't add another $7 billion uh, into the business and then uh, tell the business to uh, earn for you another $6 billion because that's not possible. It's, um, it's, the, the return on incremental capital that is contributed into the business uh, will be much lower than the return on existing capital, the legacy capital that that was already contributed into the business many years ago. And that's because uh, the compounding has essentially stopped within the business or has slowed down significantly. So high returns can be earned on some dollars, but only on past dollars, not on future dollars. Uh, so uh, the, the, this... Uh, so, if, if you have two businesses, say one business can continue earning high returns on capital for many years and another business, it can it can earn high returns on capital for only a few years, then uh, logically you'd be willing to pay more uh, for the business that can earn uh, uh, high returns for a longer period, right? Uh, so so you, when you invest into a company, you sort of have to have uh, some idea of how long the company can compound your money into the future. Uh, so, so if you take a company like uh, Starbucks, for example, uh, now 
the, the way Starbucks grows its earnings and revenues and so on these days is about op- uh, it, it, it's mostly by uh, opening a large number of stores in China. Uh, the U.S. market is already uh, more or less saturated for Starbucks. There, there's already enough Starbucks uh, in almost every major city in the U.S. And so, so store growth in, in the U.S. will be fairly limited in the future, whereas China is not like that. Uh, there are there are still not that many Starbuckses in in China, uh, so you have to take the rate at which Starbucks is growing in China. How, and you have to have some idea of uh, okay, how many stores are eventually possible to open. So Starbucks cannot keep forever increasing their store count in China because at some point of time, uh, the the store count in uh, China will also get saturated, just just like the U.S. So. Uh, in your model for, uh, say, Starbucks's future cash flows or something like that, you cannot assume that Starbucks will keep uh, growing its stores in China forever. If, if you do that, you will get an artificially high valuation for Starbucks, which will never materialize in practice. So all these natural limitations will start to kick in at some point in the future. And if you don't know exactly what that point in the future is, or if you don't have a good idea about what this point is, where exactly this ceiling will be hit, then you cannot estimate very well how much you can pay for Starbucks today because you don't know how much future growth is there uh, in front of it. So so when, when thinking about investing in companies, it's always a good idea to try and understand, okay, what is the market these guys are trying to target? How big the market is? And if they keep growing uh, into this market at the current rate, how long will it take for the market to get saturated? Because after the market is saturated, the compounding will stop. And uh, in order to decide what price you can pay for a business, you have to have some idea of how long compounding can go on for. Uh, it can't go on forever, but how long can it go on for? And businesses uh, where it can go on for longer periods of time, uh, you can typically pay more for those businesses than businesses where the compounding has already stopped and uh, now you're just extracting cash out of the business. Does that make sense? Yeah, great. And and uh, just a follow-up to that, it is uh, how do we see or how do we uh, uh, think of like a hyper-growth businesses like the, the Shopify type businesses, right, where uh, maybe they're showing le- less profits and most of the money is getting reinvested uh, for the future growth. So how right. do you see uh, these type of companies? How do you fit in into our model while applying these principles? It's more, mostly most of the common parameters price to sales. Is there is any other parameters that we can look at it uh, to apply the compounding principles? Right. Uh, so I'm not a fan of uh, price to sales. Uh, simply because uh, you know one one dollar of sales at uh, at one company and one dollar of sales at another company are two completely different uh, things. So totally. uh, what, what what really matters is uh, how much of that dollar of sales uh, can be converted into a cash that can be extracted out of the business by the owners of the business. Uh, that that is really uh, where the rubber meets the road. And of course, uh, for a for a business like Shopify, for example. Um, there, there are two effects in play here. So the first effect is what uh, uh, Shashi asked about, uh, the, the role of uh, intangibles and R&D and things like that. So companies like Shopify, uh, they are investing 
a lot of money into uh, developing new capabilities and acquiring new customers and all, all sorts of things um, in, in the business. But all these uh, investments that they are making today, they are not necessarily classified uh, by uh, uh, in the reported numbers as investments. So some of those investments may actually be classified as expenses. And so when you take the earnings of a company like uh, Shopify, the earnings may be uh, dramatically understated uh, sim simply because uh, a lot of things which must be uh, capitalized are actually expensed. Uh, now, I don't know if this is uh, the case for Shopify or not, but a lot of companies like Shopify, uh, when they uh, direct the investments through the income statement instead of through the balance sheet, uh, what happens is that uh, their earnings are understated. So that, that is one important effect that happens uh, with these uh, high growth companies. And that must be, uh, we, we must sort of take that into account. Uh, the, the second thing um, that we have to look at is, um, you know, these companies are growing at a, at a fast rate. At, at, at some point in time, uh, their growth will eventually uh, stop or, uh, or slow down and so on. And between now and then, uh, how fast are they going to grow is one, one important parameter. But then uh, what happens after this growth stops? Uh, or slows down significantly. At that point in time, they will have a lot more customers than what they are having now uh, because they've grown for all these years. Uh, and then uh, they will probably be, be making a lot more in revenues. They'll probably be making a lot more in uh, in cash flows and, and so on. So at that time, what do the steady state economics of the business look like? So do you think, for example, that uh, uh, Spotify's free cash flow margin Will it be 30%? Will it be 20%? Uh, so what will the business look like at, at that point of time after the growth has uh, slowed? And once the growth has slowed, uh, let, let's say uh, th these guys are making, uh, say, 30% uh, uh, free cash flow. So, so if for every $100 in revenue, let's say they are able to uh, make 30% uh, in, uh, in, uh, of, of free cash flow. Now the question is, what are they going to do with that $30? For every $100 of revenue, they're able to make $30 in uh, uh, cash, but then that, that cash cannot be reinvested back into the business because uh, uh, the growth uh, uh, there's no more growth that's possible in the business. Growth has already stalled. So now uh, what are they going to do with that $30? Are they going to just return it back to owners? And if that is the case, if they are going to return that money back to owners, then uh, you, you have to look at uh, how much you're paying for the business now versus how much uh, you will be getting for uh, uh, in, in the future, these, these future $30 payments. And then you have to calculate your return based on that. So if, if I think I have to pay up $100 today um, and then for the business, and then I'll be, I'll be getting back uh, $30 uh, from the business each year, but my payouts are going to start only in, say, Year, year 10 and not not right away then uh, i have to calculate the irr of that sequence of cash flows and then i have to decide okay do i think uh, th this is a, a good irr uh, also um, wh what is the certainty with which i can um, uh, i can base these irr calculations so how certain i am that uh, i will be getting this 30 dollars uh, say 10, 10 years down the line so so 
these are all the types of considerations that are usually um, uh, th that we usually have to worry about uh, when, when we invest in high growth companies. So, so uh, how how big is the market? Uh, how how long the growth in these companies can continue for? And once the growth has stopped, what does the steady state economics look like? And what is the company actually going to do with the steady state cash flows once the uh, growth has stopped? So broadly speaking, if you're a buy and hold type long-term investor, uh, these are the kinds of things that will end up um, impacting your returns from such investments uh, over the long term. Wonderful. I think uh, you shared a lot of insights probably will uh, go through all the points once again and then maybe take some examples and uh, thanks thanks for doing this absolutely and one, absolutely and and one final it's more of not it's not a question it's more of wish list i, I think i was um, watching your video sometime beginning of uh, last year the the talk that you provided to fintwit summit right. where you have one slide i captured in my phone as a picture how much math you need to know uh, versus how good you are an investor you are, right? Um, right. I think you covered a lot of the, these concepts uh, uh, like compounding, retirement planning, uh, business growth, uh, probability, and uh, various uh, uh, principles in your threads. Um, I, I'm not too sure, uh, maybe it's a future request for you. Uh, whenever you get a chance, maybe if you can cover the 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 other topics like sensitivity analysis or modern portfolio theory. I don't know whether it is already right. covered. I could not find those content. Maybe it is more of a wish list uh, as a request uh, to cover it in the future. That's all from my side. Thank you. Much appreciated uh, again. Uh, sure. Uh, absolutely. So I have a list of uh, topics um, uh, on my phone. And uh, so that list of topics is uh, future threads that I want to write about. And uh, modern portfolio theory is, is, is one of those topics. And Perfect. sensitivity analysis is uh, another of those topics. I just haven't gotten around to writing those threads yet. Great. We'll, we'll wait for your updates. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so the next uh, question comes from uh, Casey. Uh, Casey is also... Uh, become a regular caller on the show. Hey, Casey, how are you? Yeah, I'm a big fan. Thanks, 10K. Um, a, a couple of follow-up questions based on what everybody else has asked. So when you're talking about expenses versus an investment on the balance sheet, uh, it's required that it's R&D on the uh, income statement. It's, it's not an option for public companies to choose the balance sheet or the income statement, correct? Uh, well, so um, generally accepted accounting practices, so uh, GAAP requires that certain kinds of expenses like R&D, for example, with the uncertain payoffs in the future, uh, they have to be expensed uh, right away. Uh, so uh, companies cannot choose whether uh, they want to expense it or uh, capitalize it. Uh, but companies can, uh, they always have the option of disclosing non-GAAP uh, numbers alongside uh, the, the gap reported numbers. So in those non-gap numbers, they can do basically whatever they want. Uh, so, so they can report two, two sets of numbers to you and you, you have to decide how to make sense of both, both sets of numbers. Okay, got it. Makes sense. Um, and then your previous caller uh, 
Duluth just asked this question, but a kind of a, an adjustment to the question. So as he mentioned, Charlie Munger, he says, you know, the first rule of compounding is to, to not interrupt it unnecessarily. And if you're the type of investor that is uh, trying to buy a uh, dollar for 50 cents and it comes to what your, what your intrinsic value, what you believe its intrinsic value to be, um, you have a couple options. You can you can sell the, the business because it's reached intrinsic value and pay your capital gains tax and move it to cash. Right. Or you can continue to hold it because you don't have another opportunity and maybe the stock continues to move sideways or maybe it drops down and further in value. So uh, there seems to me like there's, for a new person like myself who's getting into investing, it seems to me that there's lots of uh, lots of literature on how to buy equities and and how to value them, but a, a, lot, a lot less than when to sell them. So in the context of compounding and uh, how do you look at selling a business if, if you're taking the Benjamin Graham style of buying something for 50 cents and it reaches a dollar, do you, is it better to sell and pay the capital gains tax or better to hold it until you find the next opportunity? And, and, and one more point, I, I seem to hear all these value investors say that all of their biggest mistakes seem to be in selling the businesses too soon when they continue to compound further. Um, anyways, so yeah, thank you. Uh, right, absolutely, absolutely. Th- these are all uh, wonderful questions. Uh, so let's uh, zero do- uh, zero in on uh, one one particular concept that you mentioned, which is uh, intrinsic value. Uh, so, so the way intrinsic value is usually defined, it's the present value of all uh, future cash flows that an owner will get from investing in this company. Um, now, if you take all the future cash flows that you're going to get out of an investment, um, you have to decide how to discount those future cash flows. So what is the discount rate that you will be applying to those cash flows? So intrinsic value, uh, your your estimate of how much uh, these cash flows are worth, uh, a big part of that intrinsic value is going to depend on uh, the discount rate that you use for discounting these uh, future cash flows. Uh, now, if it turns out, uh, let's say you use a, a, a higher discount rate, then you will get a lower uh, intrinsic value, a lower fair price for the business. Uh, so it, just because a business reaches your estimate of intrinsic value uh, doesn't mean the, the business is going to, uh, the, the stock is going to go down from there because it's already reached intrinsic value or whatever, because there is this big thing called the discount rate that is sort of baked in uh, to the intrinsic value. So uh, if you uh, calculate the intrinsic value at a particular discount rate, then uh, the stock might have reached your estimate of intrinsic value. But if you calculate uh, the intrinsic value at a, at a different uh, discount rate, then the stock may not have reached your estimate of uh, intrinsic value. If you use a lower discount rate, for example, then um, the, 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 the intrinsic value you get will be higher, which may be higher than the current stock price in the market. So what it really means is that once a stock has reached a particular value in the market, uh, you have to look at uh, the future returns that you can expect out of this stock. So basically, what is the discount rate that you have to apply to the future cash flows of the business so that the intrinsic value that you get is exactly equal 
to the market price of the stock. So whatever that discount rate is, that is the return that you will get uh, going forward if you continue to hold this company at that price. Now, if you estimate the future cash flows of the company and then you calculate this going forward return, let's say that going forward return turns out to be 8% or something like that, then what it means is if you just hold on to this business forever um, at these prices, uh, you, you will get 8% uh, from these prices going forward. Not, not from the price that you paid for the business, but from the current market price. Now you have to make a choice. Uh, because there is always this question of opportunity cost. If you are aware of other opportunities, which are lower priced in the market or something like that, um, at which you will get, uh, you expect to get a higher rate of return, uh, then you may want to sell the stock and buy into those opportunities because they give you, uh, because they promise you a rate of return that is higher than this 8% or whatever. Um, but again, your intrinsic value is only an estimate. And this particular company that you have may be a truly wonderful company. Uh, it may surprise you to the upside. You may have budgeted uh, for a certain amount of uh, future cash flows. But those cash flows that actually materialize in the future, it, it may be much higher than uh, uh, the, the cash flows that uh, you estimated. And uh, typically what happens is a uh, lot of investors uh, they underestimate uh, the growth in high quality companies. Um, so future cash flows at high quality companies. Um, so to take an example, Microsoft, uh, for a very long time, Microsoft was trading at around $25 a share or $30 a share, something in, in, in that neighborhood. And uh, today it is something like uh, $300 a share or something, something like that. And a big part of uh, why uh, the market loves Microsoft so much today and uh, why the market did not like Microsoft uh, 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 several years ago is simply because Microsoft has several new lines of uh, business, this Office 365, for example, and uh, the, the cloud business. Uh, th those kinds of business did not exist uh, several years ago. So people who were looking at Microsoft's cash flows and trying to calculate the intrinsic value of Microsoft several years ago uh, they were relying mostly on uh, sales of windows to uh, OEMs, uh, so, so copies of uh, windows that Microsoft is able to sell to Dell and other PC makers, things like that. Uh, maybe some Word, Excel, and PowerPoint. So those kinds of um, revenues and cash flows is what they were budgeting. Uh, but today, Microsoft has so many extra sources of revenue. Uh, for example, the Xbox business is uh, something new and it uh, ha has grown into a, a very formidable business in, in its own right. Uh, then Microsoft has the cloud business. Then they have all this um, uh, Office 365 and all that. Then they have uh, they, they made a couple of acquisitions. Uh, they, they acquired LinkedIn, for example. Um, and, and then uh, they've recently acquired GitHub and uh, they, they may monetize that in the future. Uh, so it, it's it's very hard to calculate what the future cash flows of Microsoft will be. Um, so to some extent, it's a leap of faith. If you uh, trust in the quality of current management, and if you think management will find ways of improving those future cash flows, it may not be possible for you to exactly tell how those future cash flows will materialize, but at high quality companies uh, run by uh, good management, uh, they usually have several levers to pull 
several acquisitions to make, several kinds of investments they can do, several new lines of businesses they can start. They, they have all kinds of things they can do to uh, increase future cash flows. And um, when you make your estimate of intrinsic value, uh, you may not uh, be accounting for all those uh, options. And so some other business, which is of lower quality, um, might seem like it might offer a higher rate of return uh, than Microsoft because your estimate of intrinsic value tells you that you can expect an 8% return, say, from Microsoft going forward. Some other business may, uh, may look like it may offer you 12%, but this 8% may be an overly conservative estimate and the actual returns going forward may be something like 15%. So to, to that extent, um, if, if you have a good management team running things, uh, over the long term, they can actually surprise you uh, to the upside. And that's why a lot of investors have regrets about identifying and buying these great companies, but you know they, they sold it when it reached in their estimate of intrinsic value, but the actual intrinsic value is much higher than their estimate. And, and so that's that's the reason for their uh, regret. Yeah, I think Manush Parai always says that uh, even if a business you own is overvalued, do not sell it. Only if it's egregiously overvalued, egregiously overvalued, should you sell it. And um, I think Coca-Cola. Right. But I think another example counter to that argument, though, is that Warren Buffett owned Coca-Cola and his returns. I can't remember what the time frame was, but his returns were, were very stellar for a period of 10 years. And the PE was very high, and um, anybody anybody worth their salt could tell that the investments going forward for Coca Cola would not be seller because the the PE was already so high and it was already built into the cost. And then the returns for the next ten years were like two or three percent. And uh, right. but he, but but he kept it anyways uh, instead of buying a business that would be you know below intrinsic value because he he liked Coke I guess. So it's uh. It's interesting to how how someone like Buffett makes that decision to keep Coke, even though he knows returns will not be great. Uh, right. So so Buffett uh, has a peculiar uh, set of problems uh, in in his case because uh, Buffett has always been, uh, or or for for a very long time, Buffett has been flush with cash. So he he's getting all this cash. Uh, from his various operating businesses and dividends from uh, portfolio holdings and so on, uh, Berkshire is getting a huge amount of cash every year. Uh, it, it's earning all this cash. So, so some, something like $20 billion of cash or uh, thereabouts. And so, uh, sure, Buffett can sell Coca-Cola uh, or any, any business in the portfolio uh, when it becomes uh, overvalued or something like that. But then now the question is, what do you do with that uh, cash once you've sold it? So there's already an enormous amount of cash coming in uh, every year. And then if you sell this business, uh, you will have even more cash and you don't know what to do with the cash. So um, Buffett's decision at the time uh, may have been rational because, sure, he may have been able to calculate that, uh, you know, Coca-Cola uh, over the next 10 years is probably going to return something in the neighborhood of uh, 3% or something like that. But if if my only alternative is to uh, keep uh, keep cash uh, that's earning zero percent, then three uh, percent definitely looks better than zero percent. So uh, it always comes down to uh, opportunity cost. So if you're going to sell the business uh, because you think that the forward returns of that business are not going to be great, uh, you also have to have some plan uh, 
to get better than those forward returns. And that, that plan usually involves finding another investment that can give you those returns. Um, and in, in Buffett's case, uh, finding those investments is, uh, is hard because uh, he, he cannot invest in small companies. He has to invest in very large companies uh, simply because he has that much capital to put to work. And uh, so in, in Buffett's case, if he cannot find those investments very easily, uh, the rational thing to do may be to just hold Coca-Cola uh, because it's a wonderful business and it's got all this uh, upside uh, optionality. So who knows, management may, he may think that the forward returns are going to be 4% or 3%, but management may find a way to surprise him and uh, deliver even higher returns than that. So, so uh, to some extent, it's, it's, uh, it's a question of uh, how much you like your existing businesses and the management that's running them versus uh, how, how much you think you can get from some other opportunity uh, in the market, uh, which, which becomes available once you sell your existing investment. Uh, and, and it's also a function of how much cash you have on hand and how much cash you expect to get over time that you can put to work at these other alternative investments. Yeah, I think it has to be a substantially better option uh, for you to, to sell, even if you think it's at intrinsic value. Um, but, uh, but yeah, thank you. Right. Sure. Uh, so the, the next question comes from uh, Rehertz. Uh, hello. Good evening. Hello. Oh, it's evening here where I live. Uh, thank you for this meeting. I have a question, and probably stupid one, but still I will ask it. Uh, regarding compounding um, and, and linear growth versus exponential growth, so it it, it, it seems to me that uh, somebody's somebody's wealth can grow in multiple ways. Uh, wealth can grow linearly. Wealth can grow exponentially. Um, if somebody asked me why why uh, for Warren Buffett, wealth grows exponentially instead of linearly. I would struggle to answer why stock market uh, in a long uh, run grows exponentially instead of linearly. I would struggle to answer. How would you answer that? Thank you. Uh, that, that's a beautiful question. So why do uh, stocks grow exponentially or uh, why do businesses grow exponentially? Um, it's got to do with the magic of retained earnings. And Buffett addresses this point in one of his uh, recent letters. So a business earns a certain amount of uh, money on its capital. So let's say a business has, uh, say, $100 of uh, assets, and it earns 10% on those uh, assets. So this $100 of assets um, can, can be used to earn $10. Uh, now, not all this $10 uh, is taken out typically by the business's owners. So wh when when a business earns, say, uh, $10 on $100 of capital, it, it may choose to distribute only $5 of this $10 back to uh, its owners. So what, what happens is uh, now the business has uh, this existing $100 of assets which it had previously, but now it has another $5 uh, which is the profit that has not been distributed to owners. Now, if this other $5 can be used to acquire assets of similar quality, then now the business will have $105 in assets. 
And now the business has $105 in assets. And because the assets are all of similar quality, uh, the business next year, it can earn 10% on this assets. It earns uh, $10.50 on on these uh, $105 worth of assets. So now the earnings of the business have have grown uh, from just uh, $10 last year to $10.50 this year. So that's like a 5% growth uh, in, in the earnings of the business. And if the business continues doing this, so each year uh, it earns a certain amount on the assets that it already has, and then it distributes half those earnings to owners. And then the other half, um, it uses it to buy more assets. Uh, So that is the magic of retained earnings. So the business doesn't distribute all its earnings to owners right away. It retains part of those earnings and reinvests those earnings into uh, other assets and those assets also earn um, a, a return over time. And if those return percentages remain more or less constant with time, what happens is uh, the fallout of this is you get 5% growth per year. And that is exponential growth. So um, a, a big part of achieving exponential growth in your net worth, why, why has Warren Buffett been able to achieve exponential growth? A big part of that is owning businesses. So if you want to achieve exponential growth in your net worth uh, or wealth, uh, the the best way to do that is by owning businesses, either by starting and running a business of your own or by uh, buying businesses in the stock market. So, some Something like that. You, If you want an engine of exponential growth, uh, businesses that are able to earn a good return on capital, that is the single best way I know uh, to be able to achieve this kind of growth. Does, does that answer the question? Yeah, thank you. Very, very good answer. Thank you. Sure. Uh, so, so the next uh, question comes from uh, Shashi. And uh, let's, let's make this the last question because we are, uh, we are at uh, an hour and 20 minutes now. So I'll, I'll take the next question from Shashi. Hi, Tinke. Uh, can you hear me? Uh, yes, I can hear you. Uh, okay. Uh, so a quick one. Uh, first one, uh, I have a couple of questions. The uh, first one is with regards to the discount rate uh, that you discussed earlier. Uh, what I want to know is, uh, do you, I mean, in your type of uh, uh, DCF uh, models, what do you normally use? Uh, do you use a, a weighted average uh, cost of capital or do you have certain, uh, like a hurdle rate? that you like a fixed hurdle rate or an opportunity cost uh, rate uh, that you use. That is one question. Uh, Also, with regards to the uh, terminal value uh, of uh, cash flow projection, um, I mean, what approach do you normally take? Uh, I I know there are a couple of approaches. uh, uh, I mean, uh, like, Value investors, what they do is they just have, uh, I believe, like a like an exit value uh, based on the free cash flow multiple. Or if it's an academic uh, sort of way, they use this uh, t- terminal value calculations, uh, like after ten years. So, what approach do you recommend, or what do you use? Thank you. Uh, right, absolutely. Uh, 
so so these are all uh, wonderful questions uh, and they have to do with the mechanics of uh, how to calculate a dcf um, so um, the the discount rate the terminal value uh, all these things um, the, the assumptions behind terminal value so on all these things are um, inputs that go into a dcf so so your question is about uh, how exactly do you choose these inputs if you will right um, so well let, let's do the dis discount rate first um, so there, there are lots of approaches to calculating a uh, reasonable discount rate. So if you uh, watch uh, some of uh, Aswad Damodaran's uh, uh, videos on YouTube, uh, he, he talks about starting with a risk-free uh, return, uh, risk-free rate of return, and then adding on an equity risk premium, and then uh, doing some uh, weighted average cost of capital calculations and then adjusting for the risk that you perceive in the business and 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 so on so uh, he, he does all these things to determine a reasonable discount rate to use while doing a DCF um, now uh, there, there is a lot of uh, merit to all this uh, theory and uh, it's it's very very useful to understand this theory uh, but when I do this thing in practice uh, I look at what kind of return I want from the business. So if I, um, so I have sort of uh, done calculations and I have sort of come to the conclusion that if I'm able to get a 10% return on my investments, then uh, I, I'm probably going to be fairly comfortable in life. So my goal is not to get the highest possible return that there is. My goal is rather to get 10% with the lowest amount of risk. Uh, so, so, so my, my goal there, uh, because my goal is to get 10%, uh, I, I will use a 10% discount rate, uh, simply because that's the return that I want to get. And then, um, so I will take the future cash flows that I expect to get out of a business, and then I will discount them at 10%, because that's the rate of return I want. And then I will figure out, okay, fine, um, that, that will give me a price that I can pay for the uh, for the business today. So if, if I have a business, say, uh, that, that, uh, that that can earn one, $1 per share uh, forever into the future, um, then uh, if I discount that at, uh, if I discount those earnings at, at uh, 10%, um, then I will, I will get a, a, a value for the business of uh, $10, $10 per share. So I can pay $10 per share for uh, this business and still get that 10% return that I want. Um, now, if, if the shares are uh, in, in the market are trading at uh, lower than uh, this $10 per share, then uh, I, I can buy those shares and get my 10% uh, and a little bit over that 10%. But if, if the shares are trading at say $15 a share or something like that in the market, that's higher than what I can pay if I want my 10% return. Uh, so this is the basic uh, uh, thing that I use. So I've uh, because I I am comfortable with a 10% return, I use a 10% discount rate in in my calculations. But if you want a higher return, if you want 12% or 15%, then that is the discount rate that you have to be using. Uh, so so it really depends on the investor. Uh, what what kind of return do they want? 
the second thing is terminal value. Uh, terminal value, there's a, there's a lot of intelligent discussion about how, how do you do the, uh, how do you choose a terminal value for a DCF and, and so on. Um, and a lot of it has to um, depend on how long you think the runway for growth is. So what uh, most people, uh, when, when they do a DCF, they assume that the business will grow at a certain rate. Uh, for a certain period of time. So, for example, they may assume that this business will grow at uh, 15% per year uh, for the next, say, 10, 10 years. And then after 10 years, they will assume uh, that uh, the business will stop growing or it will grow only at 2% or 3% per year. And that becomes the terminal growth assumption for the, for the business, 2% or 3% per year. Um, now, when, when, when I buy a business, um, I generally don't like to uh, ascribe a very high terminal value to it. So I may just assume, for example, that uh, uh, the, the business will never grow uh, in, in the terminal stages of, of the business. So I may assume growth for a certain, certain amount of time uh, that I feel comfortable with. And how, how do I get this time? Well, it depends on what I think the market is that the business is targeting. So if, if I'm trying to analyze Starbucks, for example, I'll, I'll try and figure out, okay, how big is China? And if China has to have the same uh, per capita uh, number of Starbucks that uh, the US currently has, then uh, how, how many more Starbucks can be opened in China? Uh, I, I do some simple analysis like this to get a back of the envelope number for how how long I think growth can continue and at what rate that growth can continue. Um, so when I buy a business, I don't even want to get to terminal value because terminal value may be 10 years down the line, 15 years down the line and, and so on. By that time, uh, I want to have already made uh, my my money back. So if, if I'm getting a 10% uh, per year return, right? Uh, what it means is um, if, if I get um, a steady uh, sort of stream of cash flows that gives me a 10% return, in, in 10 years, I've already made my money back. I don't have to look at a terminal value, which is 25 years out or 15 years out or, or anything like that, because in 10 years, I've already made my money back. That, that's what uh, a 10% return um, essentially is. Um, so I like to be conservative when it comes to terminal value. Um, I, I like to find businesses and invest in businesses where the terminal value isn't a large part of the DCF. So a lot of uh, very high growth software companies and things like that, if you, if you look at the DCF and if you break down the DCF into a growth phase and a terminal phase, and you calculate what is the DCF value that comes from the growth phase, what is the DCF value that comes from the terminal phase, it actually turns out that for a lot of these businesses, a lot of commonly done DCFs, the terminal value is actually a huge part of the DCF value. And I don't like that very much. I, I like to have businesses that uh, return so much cash back to me before they ever reach the terminal stage that the, the terminal value is not a big part of the, of the DCF. And uh, I, I can be completely wrong about the terminal value assumptions and still uh, perform reasonably well on my investments. I, I like to choose investments that look like that.
that's that's uh, make sense in that in that case in that case 10k like um, i mean if if we look at that lens uh, i mean most of the growth companies the cash flows are uh, far out in the future so right. uh, definitely terminal value will be the uh, highest portion in the valuation uh, so uh, in that case um, we will probably miss out the next uh, amazon or shopify or whatever you know these companies uh, not shopify maybe uh, amazon microsoft apple uh, uh i mean we might be missing it uh, in the early stages aren't we uh yes that is definitely a risk so if uh, if a large part of the valuation comes from the terminal value and you don't like that kind of uh, uh, company um mm-hmm. then you you will be missing out on you you will not choose those companies for your portfolio you you will be missing out on uh, on those companies uh but as i said you know my uh, so so if i'm managing money institutionally if if or uh, if i'm a professional money manager uh, my job is to get the highest possible return for my investors uh but thankfully my job is not that i'm happy with a 10% return i i don't want the <laughs> next next amazon or the next apple or or anything like that i'm i'm happy with the current amazon or the current apple <laughs> as long as they give me my 10% yeah i think your approach is like uh, i think terry smith has the same approach i believe like he only invests in uh, you know the companies that have made through already like uh, microsoft amazon uh, right terry smith is a, is a wonderful investor and he has a few um uh, videos on on youtube and things like that and uh, i i recommend everybody on this call to to watch those videos you'll learn a lot about investing so in particular i i like terry smith's uh, three three step process uh, so find find wonderful businesses that's the first step so step 1 find wonderful businesses that is businesses that are earning good returns on capital and who can continue to reinvest that capital at those similar rates of return so find find wonderful businesses second step is uh, don't overpay for them so buy them at reasonable prices and then the third and most important step is uh, do nothing that's the third step so find wonderful businesses buy them at reasonable prices and do nothing so this this is terry smith's uh, three step investment philosophy and uh, i i really love that philosophy and uh, some of his videos on youtube uh, are very very good uh, you you can learn a lot about investing just by uh, reading about terry smith and uh, re- reading the stuff that he's written and also watching his youtube videos yeah i i think his book is also really good uh, in, i think i haven't read it so far uh, uh, yeah i have also not read his book but my um my impression is that uh, that that book uh, if you've already read his uh, shareholder letters and and things like that uh, the, the book i think is uh, sort of a, a compilation of those letters or something like that it's it's okay. not uh, yeah, it's yeah. not entirely new material uh, or at least that that's what i've heard from people who have okay. read the book okay okay thanks thank you thank you absolutely so um, thank thank you all very much for uh, showing up uh i hope uh, that you gained something out of this and uh, i had a lot of fun doing this and uh, we'll meet next week uh, again in in the meantime if you really liked uh, what you heard um 
you know please please share this on social media in, invite your friends to join future weeks and so on so this is all completely free and we are we are just trying to help each other become better investors uh, through through these weekly sessions and the more of us who can benefit uh, uh, the more happy i am and uh, the, the better it is for all of us so thank you all very much for showing up and see you next week